Welcome to the second episode of Taken Off the Ritz. I'm Dan Garman. I had written and recorded a long intro to this episode, but after listening back, I was really unhappy with it. It felt shiny and manicured and dishonest and honestly pretty holier than thou. And that's exactly what I'm trying to avoid and cut through by having these conversations and having this podcast. So in that spirit, here's a more stripped back version of what I was trying to say the first time. There was a large conversation about the casting of the replacements for Sweeney Todd on Broadway the past couple weeks. A lot of people critiqued the decision to cast Aaron Tveit and Sutton Foster in the two lead roles, but many defended it as well. The piece that felt left out of the conversation, regardless of the merits of both sides, was that Broadway is a business. And casting is equally much based in the economics of running a show as artistic merit is, if not more. I wish we had more honest conversations about how the idea of the entertainment industry being a pure meritocracy is a falsehood, at least once you reach a certain skill level, and that beyond that, the person who gets a job could have gotten that job for one of a million other reasons, from behind-the-scenes nepotism to a coked-out casting director having an affair or an infatuation, to it just being the safest, most pleasing option for a board of directors and or investors who are deeply entwined in the financial success of a project. There's a constant tension between pure artistic expression and capitalism, and even if there are moments where it seems like the two are able to perfectly align, I believe, in reality, they are oil and water. They will never actually be able to mix. There's no value judgment here, though. I don't think that that's a bad thing or a good thing. It's just a thing. It's a truth that I wish we could honestly recognize and call out more. I wish we could see more than box office numbers. I wish we could see weekly or monthly running costs of shows. I have had the privilege of seeing some of those, and it is very illuminating. Maybe it would show us that outwardly controversial decisions are actually the only thing able to keep a show running profitably. Maybe it's more important for everyone else on a project to still receive a consistent paycheck by selling out to the lowest common denominator in some way or another. Maybe it's not worth it to risk a show closing or a TV show not getting renewed or an album not being true to an artist's established sound or brand by taking an artistically motivated, exciting risk. For artists, risk is excitement. Risk is novelty. Risk represents why we do the things that we do. What's the use of doing something that's already been done? Anyone that we respect and revere artistically 
has found a new voice or developed a new niche or expanded the artistic radius of what's possible in some way. But from a financial perspective, risk is the worst possible word. You do not want risk. You want stability. You want predictable, dependable returns on investment. These types of unglamorous realities are some of the many reasons that I've wanted to have honest conversations with people working in arts and entertainment. And boy, do we have a great conversation for you today. This week's guest is an Emmy Award-winning lighting designer and director turned social worker. She's a large part of the reason that I've even begun to have any of these conversations and thoughts and being able to express them out loud and create this podcast, please welcome Lizzie Mahoney, a.k.a. my wife, to Taken Off the Ritz. We're here with Elizabeth Mahoney, <laughs> a.k.a. Lizzie Mahoney, a.k.a. Emmy Award winning lighting director, a.k.a. my wife and a social worker in training at the moment. Um, welcome to the show. You're here for episode number two. Yeah. Ah, oh, it's so good to have you. And I'm so excited to have this conversation with you because you're one of the people of everyone I know who kind of made me start thinking about these types of conversations in a way that maybe I hadn't. Um, and so I'm excited to get into that. Yeah. I'm sorry I ruined your entire life, and now you're just a podcaster. Oh, no. <laughs> 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 well, how, you know, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Darn critical thinking skills. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, just I get to listen to the sound of my voice more often than uh, than maybe previously. But Yeah. Um, so anyway, I wanted to start and just if you wanted to give people a broad overview of kind of your trajectory at the moment, just where you started and where, you know, any school or early professional experiences and where you are now, and then maybe we can go little by little. But just from from a macro perspective, do you just want to talk about kind of the shape of your career thus far? Yeah, totally. Um so, yeah, I mean, like I think most people starting in the entertainment industry just like was a really strong theater kid. Um, I grew up in the outskirts of Houston, Texas, in a town called Kingwood. Sometimes people know what that is. Some, sometimes they don't. But um, <laughs> I grew up in Kingwood, Texas. And, um, yeah, I was like one of the best uh, technicians I guess, in that um, theater school while I was in high school and won best technician three years in a row, got like a stupid Woo! little, I know, got a stupid little trophy for it and everything. And that gave me a really inflated ego and <laughs> made me think that I could make it in New York City. Um, you know, I just watched too much television, I guess, in terms of like picking a location of where to start my career. Um, and, you know, especially since I had such a big theater background, it just made sense to be like where Broadway was and be close to New York. Um, so yeah. And then from, from graduating high school, I got into SUNY purchase and that's where I did my undergrad right out of high school, didn't take a gap year or anything. Um, and I studied lighting design there because of Dave Grill 
um, was, you know, kind of the head of the design technology program. And he was one of the lighting directors for the Super Bowl at the time. Very cool. Um, yeah, it was a big, like, resume puller that pulled me in. And um, also someone from my high school went to SUNY Purchase. And he came to our high school and was talking uh, he was like a big time set designer. He did set design for movies. And I was like, that's mm. awesome. Like, that's absolutely what I want to do. Um, so anyways, I chose that school. Um, it's also close to New York City and has a history of like hosting a lot of like Broadway lighting designers as well. And I was going into lighting design um, and I had an absolutely terrible, miserable time. My teachers hated me. <laughs> wow. um, but yeah, so anyways, I worked a little bit in entertainment industry and did some theater work. Um, and then I also found my way into television work and work predominantly at NBC Sports now. Um, but I also have a long history with NBC Universal overall. I did some work on like The Maury Show and um, Steve Wilkos and did some drafting for there and also Judge Jerry, which is Jerry Springer's um, rest in peace. I know. Rest in peace. Uh, what a sweet man. Also, just darling. That's so, so good to hear. That's yeah. so good to hear. Yeah. Sometimes it's a hit or miss, right? With those talents, you never know. Especially Jerry. I feel like it could have <laughs> gone either way. He could either could have been the, he would only be either the absolute nicest person you've ever met or like the worst of the worst. Yeah. And he always came across as super genuine. But anyway, we can talk more about that later. So yeah. not to interrupt. No, no, no. It's all good. Um. So yeah, I did. I was the lighting director for season two and season three and then it got canceled. And then, yeah, he passed a couple years later. Um, so anyways, yeah, um, I uh, did that and then pandemic came around and I was like, what the fuck am I doing with my life? I hate this. I was like, school was miserable and everything as part of my career has also been miserable. Um, mm -hmm. so I just kind of had like an oh shit moment where I was like, why did I even start this industry to begin with? Like, was it because I got too much validation in high school and I'm just like, I just searched for it for so long um, that, and then never kind of like came around and I was like, am I doing it for myself? Am I doing it for other people? Like, why am I doing this at all? Um, so that's why I'm back in school. Um, as a, I decided to go down the social work path because um, I really like I really liked therapy. I read a lot of like CogSci in my free time. Um, and I thought I was too dumb to get into like a, a psychology program, to be completely honest. <laughs> so. for, for undergrad, you thought that you wouldn't get into an undergraduate psychology program? No, 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 for, for masters. For masters. For a master's program, yeah. I didn't think they would take someone with a technical theater degree oh, to get into they, like a, uh, a psychology program. Um, so yeah, I, I decided to go to the social work route. Um, because you can get your LCSW and then practice therapy that way. Um, and that's what I'm currently doing. Now I'm in my field placement. Um, they call it practicum now, actually. Um, I'm in my practicum placement and I practice, um, I, I do intake sessions with um, undergraduates at SUNY New Paltz. Very cool. What a career already. I mean, that is such, such a crazy uh, thing that you came to those questions, which I feel like a lot of people maybe have, but they're not willing to take the steps to maybe align themselves with something different. And I think a key difference that I hear and that, you know, we've talked about before, but something that I find really interesting about your story is that 
it sounds like everyone who I've ever spoken to experiences quite a bit of abuse and, you know, has bad experiences in working in entertainment. But usually at the end of the day, at least for me and for a lot of the people I know, you know, this is music is what I've done since I was a young child. Mm. And it is such a critical part of my existence that it's almost like, well, I've been doing it forever and it's so close to me that I'm working in my given field. And I think something that's really interesting that you brought up very early on, um, which maybe I had enough attachment to that I had a lot wrapped up in it that that you didn't, is that you were able to ask yourself, like you weren't showing up at work with the newest books on the newest moving light technology. And, oh, but like, people do a- that. No, but- I know. And, <laughs> and I think that that's actually something that's interesting here is that you, it, you you found yourself. There is a space in the industry for people who are super geeky and nerdy about the stuff, but you know, I think it's more a recognition of where the passion actually lies, and you were like, well, is it lights? And I think something that I've found very inspiring about listening to your story is that at the end of the day, it, it wasn't lights. It was everything else. Mm-hmm. Um but anyway, I mean, maybe let's let's backtrack and let's go back to the very beginning. And if you want to just talk a, a little bit about your high school experience more in depth and just the feelings that what got you into that. Uh, and then we can kind of move from there. You gave us the macro. Maybe let's dive in. Yeah. Micro again, just to just to understand more about your perspective. Um, so, yeah, what what do you remember what actually got you hooked at the very beginning on theater or tech yeah. performance. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's actually interesting. Cause I like, I, I tend to like block this part of my life out, like memory wise when I look back, but um, I was a competitive dancer for the majority of my life. You know, I feel like, I don't know if there was any specific reason why they signed me up for it, but um, yeah, I feel like, you know, uh, back in those days, it was like, oh, you know, you're assigned gender of female. So now here's some dance lessons. And I just really took to it and I liked it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I was a competitive dancer until I was 12 years old. So it's kind of ironic, I guess, like people ask me that question a lot. They're like, how did you come from like the performer aspect of it? And then how'd you end up in technical theater? Um, and the reality was that I always, I always had interest in being a director. Like, you know, my, my, um, my mom would sign me up for like, like I would do theater camp at the YMCA, for example. And Mm -hmm. I was, I was Gabriella in high school musical that dates me a little bit, but not as much as you, I guess. So we are, (laughs) I mean, this is the thing though, is that you are a performer in some regard at heart. Yeah. And I'm interested to hear more about how, how you found, you know, design tech instead of performance, but yeah. So continue. Yeah. I feel like, um, performance was always fun, but there was no like means of control. And like, I don't know, I never really found the art to it. And I think maybe, maybe I was too young in a way, but I think really early on, I was like, I don't have enough say in what's going on artistically. Like I had a really big interest. I loved watching, I loved watching like directors kind of like 
put the whole piece together. And I was like, I want that position. So mm-hmm. um, I think that's kind of why I took to lighting more than anything. I think lighting is like most tied in terms of like um, storytelling. I think it's most tied to direction and it's kind of like underrated in that regard. Um but yeah, uh, there wasn't a lot of directing opportunities, like obvi- for obvious reasons, in high school. So I just became really good at uh, lighting because that was kind of like the closest I could get. Interesting. Yeah, um, and the technology part just kind of like came along for the ride. Like that was never like my primary interest. That's why you never saw me like sitting around <laughs> researching moving lights. It was like they're just tools for for the artistic expression. It was never. Right. It was never about the technology. I think the devil's advocate to that would be that the the more you understand the you know people there's 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 a balance all the time but people who get very gear oriented I think it's usually I would hope in the exploration of being able to you know bring out that expression more eloquently you you open yourself to having more tools so I totally understand why. I mean, I, I'm a huge gear nut for music stuff. Yeah. And I, I remember looking at you at the beginning and saying, huh, it's really interesting that that's not something that maybe motivates you the same way. Um, it yeah, probably yeah. would have helped a lot, to be to be fair. Like, I was a bad... I had no interest in, in stuff like that. And I think that's kind of like... Why pandemic wise, it kind of came to a halt because I was like, there's no motivation to learn any more about lighting. The funny thing about this <laughs> that we're leaving out here is just mm-hmm. how absurdly talented you are. And everything that I've ever seen you design is so visceral. And, you know, it was one of the things that drew us together was we worked on a project that was an immersive house party show in Brooklyn back in 2016. We worked on Kerrigan Louder Milk's the bad years Mm -hmm. uh, in an immersive workshop and your kind of vision there. And then stuff I saw you do over the years, you know, that it, it was some of the only stuff that it made me recognize lighting. I think I never really had an idea lights existed and they turned some colors and helped tell the story, but they were never center stage. Maybe the way that you and, you know, the people you were working with uh, kind of were able to telegraph that. Um, but anyway, to go to go back to so you're in high school and you're doing this. And I guess the real question is, at what point did you decide that this was your career path? So, you know, quote unquote. And and at what point did you make the firm decision that uh, you were going to go to college for this? And what did you imagine your life? Did you imagine anything about what your lifestyle would be upon graduation? Was it just I'll go to New York or what? You know, what was that? Yeah, Um it's it's really funny that you mention it. I mean, I would have to conversations with um like my technical theater director growing up and like we had like this kind of like you know theater like local theater kind of like award show like Emmy not Emmy award but uh Tony award like, right? Right. Um and I designed, you know, the uh my junior and senior year I designed the lights for um the show, the musicals we were doing that year and they got nominated for like best lighting design there. And, um, while that was happening, my theater director would be like, would look at me and be like, wow, did you like ever think that would happen in your life? And I was like, honestly, (laughs) yeah, because I'm really dedicated. And like, that's what I expect of myself. Um, uh, so yeah, in terms of like my whole career, I feel like I kind of, you know, I I feel like I kind of ended up exactly where I thought I would be as well. Like it was never really like a, um, 
like Broadway lighting design is the end goal. It was just kind of, I was kind of like, you know, shooting arrows and seeing where it would stick. And it stuck pretty hard in television. And it wasn't because I was like, I'm going to bulldoze my way there. And a lot of that comes from privilege. Like, I mean, that's a huge part of this conversation that we're leaving out. Like, um, you know, I was, I grew up in like a financially stable home and like, I'm also white. And, you know, I think people really liked the idea of having like a doughy eyed girl around for a lot of the work that I was able to get Sure. in the industry. Um, but yeah, um, because of that privilege and, and, kind of like what I was expecting out of my career. I just, it was kind of like whatever stuck. Um, and it stuck really hard in television, not because I like set out to make that path, but that's just kind of, I don't know. It followed the waves and it led me there. Right. So I, I guess the, is there a more direct answer to the question of, did you conceptualize the financial reality of having to make a living doing this? Or yeah. did you have enough enough means and enough privilege to just be like, you know, it should be fine. Like, were you still kind of on that train of, well, I work my ass off and uh, I'll be able to make it work? Yeah, I think, um, I don't know. Yes and no, right? Because, you know, a lot of people, when they're like, going, you get that warning, right? You get that warning of like, oh, you're going to the arts. Like, how are you going to make money? That's like kind of, <clears throat> I don't know if that was your experience, but that was, oh, sorry, I'm getting a dry throat. It's all good. We, we can cut if need be. Come, we can come back here. Let's take, we're going to take a sec. <coughs> we're both sick. I'll cut. I'll just cut this part. Okay. Oh, <coughs> <Fuck>. <laughs> okay. Ready? Let's see. Okay. What was the question? Yeah. Just ask a que okay. question again. All right. We're back. Uh, technical difficulties aside. Uh, I think the question here was, did you have a direct conceptualization of, hey, if I'm going into this, how am I going to make a living in the, quote, real world after? Was there any conception of that? Right. Um, I think there definitely was because, you know, I kind of came from a household where, like, uh, that was kind of, like, really philosophy-wise instilled in me. Um, like, for example, I was really good at math in high school, so my dad was always like, why aren't you going into engineering? Like... Um, like right. women in STEM that we've all lost, I guess. Sure. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but anyways, um, yeah. So I think that was like, for him, he was like, you're an idiot. Like, what are you doing? Like, he wasn't going to stand in my way, um, for that. So there was a lot of motivation, I guess, to prove him wrong financially. Interesting. Um, but yeah, it wasn't like it, I wasn't privileged to a point where like they supported me. They they pretty much were like, you know what, we'll pay like we'll figure out tuition for college. But after that, like it was very hands off and like you're on your own, kid. Right. So that motivated me. You know, you know, you brought up I wasn't the lighting designer for this project. I just want to clarify. But um, the the bad years show that we both worked on mm -hmm. um, that that was while I was still in school. That was the beginning of my junior year of um, of college of my undergraduate degree. So I was try trying to start building connections. And I think that was the best thing that I ever did for myself um, financially and for my career was like starting while you're still in school. Right. I mean, I think that is a huge conversation that is a big part of all of this, right? Is that I think a lot of times 
it's it's all about connections and and sometimes proximity outweighs yes. quote maybe quality of school in terms of its reputation, right? Yes. Like I definitely think obviously if you think about Harvard or you think about the, the or Berkeley School of Music for musicians or Juilliard or these places. Yes, they're in cities and they're near cities, but there are definitely schools that don't fall within that that umbrella of geographic proximity that have a lot of reputation. And then the thing that you get there is you get connections maybe in the business world or maybe in something else. I do think it is very hard to make a living in the arts without being somewhere near where the arts quote unquote is actually happening and people are able to actually sustain themselves. I had the exact opposite experience. I spent six years. I stayed actually for a couple years after school up in Montreal and and I learned a lot of really valuable things that I don't think I ever would have learned had I moved straight to New York. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, when I moved back to the city, uh, suddenly I was definitely starting from near zero uh, it, because there wasn't a big community of people who had gone to McGill who were in New York City. Yeah. Uh, most of my connections were actually high school and prior related from the Boston area. So I think yep. especially you being from Texas... You know, I think had I not had the Boston connections, I would have been much more at a loss. Uh, so I, I think I really lucked out. But I, I, there was another, there was another school that, or there were other schools that you were thinking of, right? Like, yeah. what, you know, do you just want to talk about your decision process for arriving at SUNY? Because I think we've talked about that a bit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I had mentioned, you know, it does have like a good at the time, I don't know about anymore too much, but um, at the time it did have a really good reputation for um, pretty much just like adding people to the pool of Broadway lighting designers and um, your proximity, like you, like you mentioned to New York city is um, that's where it's all going on. That's where there is the most theater related uh, entertainment work. Absolutely. Um and there's a lot of people that work there in that industry. And, you know, all of the professors there were adjunct professors as well. So, like, that wasn't necessarily the route that I, that I get. Because, I, I don't know, I wasn't a kiss-ass, I guess, in school. How dare you? <laughs> With all due respect to people who some were. Of us, some of us were. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, was, I have too much of a... I don't know. My self-worth is too intact, I guess, to be a kiss-ass. Um, <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> with all due respect. Um, That's okay. I have none. But anyways, yeah. I mean, all of the professors were, they're adjunct professors, right? And and that's for a reason. It's because that's, this is their part-time job teaching at the, at SUNY, SUNY Purchase, for example. Um, They're all working professionals. And that was a good thing and a bad thing at the same time. Like educational, educationally wise, you know, you were getting the most up-to-date information whenever they were there, but sometimes they would be there. I don't know. You had like, 14 classes a semester sometimes they would be there for seven and like have someone else teach the course yep yep i think that i think we see that pretty consistently through different industries in terms of the practical you know i i definitely have heard stories of new york based schools having very well-known musicians be your professor but yeah exactly you get about half the half the time with them that you would someone more consistent and the question is yeah it, you know w- there's always a balance between here's the real world experience and and versus here is conventional educational theory. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something to be said for both of those. Uh, I think that's a much bigger discussion. Uh, but anyway, so you finish, so you're doing school, you're working in the city uh, in and out while you're in school. How did you find your way 
to television. And what was that like uh, at the beginning or, or even before that? What were the kind of jobs you were working to make ends meet? Because I think there was a bunch of theater yeah. stuff that you were doing before. Like what kind of stuff were you doing and how, how much did that, you know, how much did that earn you if you're comfortable talking about some of those things just so people starting out, you know, if you're still in school or you're thinking about going into this, like what kind of things were you doing? Yeah, um, really early on, I was doing a lot of electrician work, especially while I was still in school. Um because, you know, I don't know, I feel like we've talked about this maybe briefly, but I don't know if I ever mentioned, like, when I was working on the bad years, that was not, I wasn't getting paid at all. There was, like, no money involved right. at all for me because I was interning and I was being an assistant lighting designer in that role. And for me, yeah. I mean, you know, that that was kind of like the beginning of it all. Uh, to be completely honest, I met a ton of great collaborators. I met you. I met my freaking husband, for God's sakes. Like, <laughs> it took us a long time to find each other. Yeah, well, but I knew who you were for that reason. Sure, um, you were you. You gave up in financial gain what you made up for in you know connections and experience, which is kind of what people dangle in front of you as exactly. incentive. But it worked in um, a sense. But but like to to the same point, I was also in school. So so being in school and using Using that ability to like and using that time and that, um, you know, uh, if you have the privilege in that time, like I definitely recognized the privilege that I had that I didn't have to make um, a living. I didn't have to pay for rent in the same way that I did uh, by the time that I graduated. Sure. I used that time to make the connections for free. Like that was um, that was a good investment in myself. Not that. I think those are kind of dis those opportunities of like free work is kind of disappearing, but to do it while you're in school, I like that ended up helping me a lot and making those connections. Yeah. And even if you're on student loans or, you know, even if th that while you are in school yeah. and, and interest is maybe deferred and you are there to study and you're there to take, you know, that, that, yeah, as long Build as you're okay while you with can. it. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, if it's possible and if it's geographically and, you know, just in terms of the connections that people there have, yeah, the yeah. more you network during college, uh, for sure, the more you're going to make yeah. a splash when you hit the real world. So how did you find your, or what other kinds of jobs were you doing? And also, um, the electrician work, were you learning that directly in school or what kind of stuff were you doing uh, to make to have these gigs and these jobs. Yeah. Uh, what does that entail for people who don't know? You know, there's a lot of probably music people or other people. What, what kind of stuff did you have to learn to do to make ends meet um, early on like that? Yeah. Um, I look, you know, going into a program, it, like the degree was in technically theater design and technology, but um, in terms of electrician work, there was like essentially nothing right um exactly so yeah. electricity wise yeah that was like something i kind of had to like learn on my own and, and like learning to be a master electrician um you know uh i don't know it's it literally just like i had so many like good connections and people that i could rely on um but i don't know i mean some some people were also kind of really gatekeepy with the the knowledge of electricity as well so you would have to do your own digging to a degree but um interesting so let's say someone hires you for a day of electrician work on yeah. something like, that one's that one's fine you can usually kind of get away with 
with that. But um, I did know a lot in terms of like hanging lights, for example, like you don't have to do, you know, if you're being hired for an electrician, there's no, there's no brain power. It's like pretty much just manual labor at that point. And what did that make you funny? So what does a day rate look like? If you're, if you're your age, you're in college or you're just graduated and someone's like, Hey, come do this electrician work. Yeah. What, What does that look like? I started, I started at the purchase, like at, at the college, it was kind of strange because the theater department, um, like in school and the performing arts center were like two different entities. Um, interesting. Yeah, it was, it's really strange, I guess how it, uh, ended up that way. But anyways, I worked also at the performing arts center as an electrician and their student rate at the time was $15 an hour and a four hour minimum. So I'd make $60 if I worked a four hour job. And if I worked, um, an eight, an eight hour shift, it would be, you know, what is it? 120. 120. Yeah. And then, there, and then taxes get take taken out of it. So yeah, it was just pretty much table scraps <laughs> for a long period but if of you're time. In school. I mean, I think that's still reputable, you know, 15 an hour yeah. is minimum wage in the city and for now. Yeah. And, uh, as a student, hopefully that's, you know, that's something you're using it to build connections. What was the first kind of thing that you did that felt like it broke out of that threshold? of pay uh what kind of work were you doing Mm. like what before doing the tv stuff which we'll talk about but like was there an interim kind of job that you know you were working your way up and you were getting different opportunities like what kind of other stuff did you find um yeah i don't know it's such a it's such an interesting question i don't feel like any work outside of television felt anywhere close to like fair (laughs) <laughs> to be completely honest. Like, Did you feel that at the time? Were you like, this is just not enough, like I'm being exploited? Or it was mostly like, oh, I'm I'm with the right people. And, like, did was there something that counterbalanced it that made it worth it? Or it was just like, yeah. I got to take a job. It, exploited feels like a strong word. Because, I know, yeah, because, it's incendiary. Yeah, well, again, it's without knowing the full budget of a production, for example, I mean, that's exactly where they want you to be, I think, in a lot of ways, because they're like, we can't really afford much more than this. So like, are you willing to do it at all for this rate? And sometimes you're like, sometimes you're like, yeah, I am. Um, And you have to work multiple jobs at once to even like make ends meet or pay the rent or whatever it was like. Luckily, I was like, like serial monogamous and like, was always in a relationship at some point. So like even a one bedroom, it was like, I was never paying full rent by myself. There you um, go. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. There's a lot of like, there's a lot of like couple privilege as well, which I don't feel like gets talked about enough, but like financially that was a godsend, like having a double income and being able to share a room. I never had to pay for my own room by myself in New York city. Yeah. I mean, I think at the beginning, I had roommates for for a couple of years and I... Well, not just roommates, someone in your room. No, I like, know, but well, yeah. but, well, I guess what you're leaving out is at first you weren't just in a one bedroom, you were in a you were in a two bedroom and you were four people sharing the two bedroom. Correct, correct? yes. Right, so it's not just, it's not just that you're alone in an apartment splitting yeah. the apartment, it's that, you know, you found a way to be a couple and split the cost of a room in a shared apartment, which, you know, when you're starting out, it's pretty important, like... I would have been screwed had that first two years I, I, I broke a sublet mid sublet in Brooklyn to find this other place that was rent stabilized. And I had a room that was like the size of most people's studios, apartment studio apartments for $600 a month plus utilities. Mm-hmm. 
and it was a four bedroom, two bath. It was, you know, it was pretty deep in Brooklyn. The flip side was, you know, there's always a trade-off. My walk to the A or to the three in Crown Heights was 12 ish minutes just to get to the subway Mm. and then to get from Brooklyn to, you know, to wherever I was going. Like it was a schlep for sure. And that was a trade-off I was willing to make because, you know, so that there's a reason that people end up in the neighborhoods that they end up in. You know, a lot of theater people were in Washington Heights or you were in, you were in Inwood, like people either go uptown or Brooklyn or Astoria. So, uh, interesting. So then how did you find your way to TV? Like what was the, and, and what was that experience? Yeah. I mean, like I said, I never really forced my way through anything. I kind of was something that happened upon me. Uh, what was my first job in, in TV? Because I don't think it was NBC Sports. It was um, Alan. That? Yeah, Alan Bla- Blacher, Um, He's a lighting designer. He's done like a lot of like um, uh, he's done. He's the designer for The Maury Show. And he also did like Martha Stewart for several years, Rachel Ray and Wendy, Wendy Williams when she was still on air. Um, anyways, he was, he kind of had like a hold on like the reality television, like talk show type lighting designers. Um, and he was doing a pilot episode that his normal (laughs) assistant wasn't available from and through purchase connections, um, you know, he gave me a call. I was like, and he was like, are you available to be my assistant lighting designer on this? And I was like, yes, absolutely. Um, even though it was really intimidating and I essentially knew nothing about television, I was like, oh yeah, absolutely. Like literally just, you'd be surprised. Like, I mean, you definitely don't want to be caught with your pants down, but yeah, yeah, in terms of like building a house of cards uh, to kind of like, you know, when someone asks you if you have experience in this, and this is also something that Alan reinforced to me later in my career as well, you just say yes. And then ask someone else later. Yep. That was exactly, (laughs) that was exactly what I did. Actually, you you had me do this where, where <laughs> I got a call. I got a call or you got a call from a high school that oh, yeah. had paid you very, uh-huh. very well for lighting, designing a show. Mm-hmm. And they asked you if you did sound design and you know, I've done a bunch of live sound, but I had never run a show theatrically. Yeah. And they were like, great tech is this weekend. And you were like, yeah, my, my husband can do it. Uh, yeah. And so I went in and exactly like I knew what I was doing enough, but I had never done a real show with actual scenes and faders and everything. I knew how it worked, but I had never physically done it. And yeah, I I think that is luckily I would never do that at anything that wasn't, you know, low ish stakes. It was either me or no, or like nobody They They were so last minute and it was such the right place to try to learn those things. I think that's the other half is like how, uh, how big a risk are you taking, right? Like right. if you say yes to something, it really has to be a calculated risk where you say, yes. what are, what would the fallout be if it if I get exposed for the fact that I, you know, it's like all those people who get software programming jobs who have kind of BSed their way through a coding boot camp and then they get there and they're like, oh, now I have to have ChatGPT write all of my code. Mm-hmm. So you really do, even if you say yes, I mean, the one caveat I would say is it has to be a safe environment in some way. So if you're an yeah. assistant, like, what's the what's the most damage you could possibly do by saying yes? Well, so, yeah, that's the thing. It's like, I'm getting the call because I have experience as an assistant, not because I have experience in television uh-huh. necessarily. So uh-huh. I think that was kind of like the, the trip up there. Um, and, yeah, I just never said that I didn't have television experience. Um because, you know, uh, in school, they took us, They ha- we had a television class, and then they took us to one studio. And then, you know, um, I got a call um, 
throughout the, my time in college, um, I hung lights at CNBC, for example, or they would call. And then one of my like the Vectorworks teacher at the time, he was um, one of the lighting director there. So I got to like sit down and see how like they did um, they did their shows and like how they programmed everything. So I was like, yeah, I have television experience. And it like to a degree, it's not a lie. But in terms of like, I really like the term of like building a house <laughs> of cards because after I had that pilot episode, not only did I build a good relationship with him and then he hired me to do some drafting projects for Maury and like Wendy Williams when they did their redesign and, and filled in as the lighting director for some of those shows as well. Um, as a substitute. Um, I also used that leverage. I was like, okay, you know, now I've done an actual pilot episode for a new show so that when I got the call from NBC and they were like, do you have television experience? It was like, yeah, I do. Yes. I do have television experience. Yes. Yes. You build your set. That is it. I mean, house of cards is a really interesting metaphor. It's like kind of a snowball effect Mm -hmm. where, yeah, you say something, you say yes to a little pebble uh, and then it rolls and rolls and gets bigger and bigger until it's just kind of something that you do. Uh, exactly. That's that's really interesting. I, I think the other thing that is a niche that you occupied for a while, which would be interesting to hear about a little bit, because this is a major difference between you and me. Like, I am not the best of assistants. Mm. I, I did assist quite a bit. I did a lot of a lot of transcription, a lot of under the hood music assistant work when I got to the city, because there is a certain regard of like, you can't just jump in. Like, yeah. unless you're someone who's established a reputation regionally, you know, or you got fresh out and it's harder. There's two different like pathways, I guess. Too. Right. So, I mean, for you, for, for people listening who maybe haven't thought of this fully other than a way of paying your debts, you know, you were really, it was always apparent to me that you were a very good assistant. So like, what mm-hmm. were, what were the kind of skills uh, for people listening? If they're thinking of trying to go more that path than just, Oh, I want to be doing the job and I'll take whatever I have to take, but you, you were just very good at it. And there are a lot of career opportunities to being assistant associate uh, that made, made other people hire you. Mm-hmm. So what were those qualities? <laughs> You're going to hate my answer because, <laughs> because, what I think I brought to the table as an assistant was the fact that I experienced so much trauma in my life oh. that I was just such a constant. I was so intuitive when people, um, you know, trauma kind of make this is now I'm bringing the therapist Let's side go. of me. Let's in. go. This is now it's a therapy <laughs> podcast. I mean, there's no set definition for what this is. <laughs> I'm bringing it in. I'm going to be the first one to do it. We're diving head first. Um, Yeah, I think what kind... Because trauma makes you so hyper aware of other people's emotions. So when you're dealing with someone who, um, you know, is a hothead or really volatile um, of a person or has fluctuating moods, um, when you have experience... Like, there's nothing that can replace life experience of being in a room with someone like that. And not to say that all lighting designers or, you know, all designers in general or all people in this industry are hotheads, but you come across them way more frequently than, you know, I think people like to admit to themselves. Um, I've been called, I've been called the asshole whisperer. (laughs) (laughs) I've never heard you say that. That's so funny. 
Um, and I really do, upon reflection and having space away from it, I think it's because I experienced so much trauma in my life and you gain real life experience in dealing with people who have those kind of moods. Um, and this is what I wrote about to get into Columbia as Let's a go. social worker as Let's well. Go. Um, is that that unique, like being in tune with someone's emotions, um, is what may be a good assistant. Like, like, yes, there's the paperwork and the blah, 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 whatever. Who cares? Like everyone can do that paperwork. Sure. Like if you have a, if you literally have an internet access, um, you can figure out how to do it. Like it's really, I think people harp on that way too much. It's it, in, the, in the same way that like getting jobs is mostly connections. Being an assistant is mostly emotional work. You know, it's really interesting you say that because hearing it phrased like that, it, it, it makes me realize that there's parallels, even though I'm not an assistant. In some ways, being a, you know, a music director and a lot of the work that I've done kind of is being the assistant, the person propping up and taking care of the people who are performing as well. And mm-hmm. I think that even if I see myself, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's the issue is that music assistant is different in a sense, because you're preparing the thing for the person to take care. You're, like th- there's a different care yeah. structure, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm just, this is all, this is all new. These are all new thoughts. Uh, yeah. I mean, well, like lighting designers aren't really taking care of other people on the team in the exactly, same way that a music director Exactly. Is. Music director is such a social, you know, director and music director are definitely, and choreographer mm-hmm. uh, on anything uh, uh, or producer or all these people who are kind of cl- uh, facing the actors or facing investors or facing all these people. There is so much management mm-hmm. and there's so much that if someone trusts in you, and is willing to hire you. It's not just because you're a good musician. Uh, it, it is a sense of they trust that wherever they're going and whatever happens, they're taking care. Of. Yeah. And my way of taking care, I think, was much more like a musical care. And I also have my own interpretation, which I can help amplify. I think I'm an amplifier more than a generator. But uh, it's really interesting to hear you say that because I actually do feel a lot of resonance that I, I don't think I've thought about before how your position as an assistant, that like it, it is different to be a lighting designer than to be a music director, even though they're kind of like two figureheads of a, of the industry in, in, on a show. Yeah. Uh, so I find, I find that very interesting. Uh, I think that's kind of like why, like we kind of found each other in a way though, too, because I think, I think, um, yeah, I, I mean, you, you kind of got hired like, it got your roles because it's like, yes, musical talent and knowledge plays a role in it. Like, I don't mean to like, it plays a very, very big role, but like, but like also wanting to be with someone in the room, like not just like a complete kiss ass, like, but, but people admire you and people like your energy and people like, like that you um, are taking their emotions into consideration. And I think that's kind of like what made us kind of like have our initial (laughs) kind of attraction to each other as well. And that connecting point, because in so many ways, it's kind of like, how did we end up together at all? I guess. Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing that I had mentioned in the previous podcast, which is with, with Mr. Kawamura, it's interesting to kind of bring back to here because you're actually the one I'm talking to now Mm -hmm is that in some ways your admiration and resonance with music 
gave me an outside perspective. I think I think this is something that Dave and I talked about a little bit, but just how it's really easy if you're not vigilant. Excuse me, I'm still sick. Uh, I gave it to him. Sorry, uh, guys. <laughs> it's really if you're very. Uh, it's it's really easy to get calcified and kind of locked in to the way that things feel within an, an industry and the way that people see things and mm-hmm. judge things. And then to just have someone who like doesn't isn't concerned with musical storytelling the same way, or if you are, it's from a different perspective, just to like feel a genuine love of the thing again from someone who's not in it there, you know, that's something that I could, that I didn't realize how important it was to me was to to just be around someone who appreciates the things you love uh, without the financial kind of implications of trying to like make it, you know, trying to, trying to film a video of you playing something that's really impressive that it's like, Oh no, 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 this, you know, your musical tastes, we just happened to align, and that was really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's something that I wouldn't ever discount in terms of. Yeah, I think also like not living with someone that you're like actively competing jobs for. Yeah, I mean, you know, people do it, and power to them. And there's some really amazing power couples who are both very deep in similar aspects of an industry. Uh, but yeah, like, yeah, I feel like, I don't know. I feel like I would have to sell myself as like a package deal at that point. Like I I couldn't imagine (laughs) like, yeah, seriously. Like how would I not resent someone? Like, I don't know. It's interesting. It's like, I would rather work with them if I'm truly in love with someone and we're in the same industry. I would, I would try to like, be like, you know, he's coming along for the ride, I guess, you know? Interesting. That's how I would approach it personally, but. Yeah. Luckily, well, we won't have to deal with that because I don't know how to read music. <laughs> there we go. And I don't know how to read electricity. So <laughs> Me neither, Carl. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, you know, so your career continues to snowball and you got to some pretty cool highs. I mean, you, you won an Emmy. I did, yeah. Uh, you... How did that happen? I don't know. It's crazy. <laughs> you made people look the right way and it was beautiful. Uh, yeah. And then you also um, worked on a very successful off-Broadway show uh, right before the pandemic. And mm-hmm. I guess like, what was there ever anything when, when stuff was working and did feel aligned? Did you still have these feelings in the background of like, man, this is unjust or once, once you're making some sort of paycheck or like it felt more like it was something that you owned in a way where you're like, oh, I'm not just kind of on the fringes, but I'm establishing myself here. Mm-hmm. I'm making the connections. Like, was there a point where you saw the career had the pandemic not happened that you were like, OK, no, 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 I'm going to do this. Yes, I think um, I have such an interesting relationship with my lighting career, I guess, from that aspect, because, you know, Uh, I came off of such a high and I really loved my last off-Broadway show that I did pre-pandemic. Right. Um, And when we met, I was like, yeah, like, this is what... I'm doing this forever because I was coming off of such a high from it and I really was passionate about the project. And um, But that was the first time that I think I felt like I was doing a theater-related show and I felt, like, actually fairly paid um, sure. Not that it was good. Like, I want to be clear. There's a difference between, like, having good pay and having, like, 
like I felt like I well, was can we, can fairly we talk, compensated. Do you feel so without necessarily even needing to state the show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you? Oh yeah, I'll lay it all out. Yeah, for lay you it guys. all out. So like, what, <laughs> what what was the amount of work that it entailed? Like yeah. both daily and or just time commitment, calendar yeah. wise. Mm-hmm. And how was the pay structure? I assume you didn't have an agent or someone negotiating no. for you. No, no, I did not have an agent negotiating for me. Um. But the lighting designer, uh, it also really it depends on the, your relationship with the lighting designer that you're working for. Like, for example, um, you know, an assistant role can look in terms of like your responsibilities can look really different sure. uh, depending on who you're working with. So usually assistants kind of like are there from the beginning, I guess, in a traditional sense. That was that was not my relationship with this lighting designer. Um, mm. I kind of got pulled in. Honestly, right before tech, like, wow. I, yeah, I think um, they're they're usually more part of the like bid process. Like, um, for those of you who don't know, like the bid process of like getting lighting, like dealing with the budget and like seeing what lights you want to get and like designing the plot together. Like, I our relationship the bid 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 the, yeah the bid process yeah yeah where you submit you submit it to um you submit like what kind of lights you want you send them around to different shops and someone will give you a quote and you decide you know and you send it back and forth yeah because I'll be totally honest uh as as someone who's in the industry and sees these at production meetings mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of people don't get to see that side. So, you know, all the designers before, when they're designing the show, once they have an initial design, what they have to kind of firm up what the rental package looks like and then yeah. submit that. That's the bid. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And then some, some uh, designers have like stronger relationships with certain shops, I guess. Like, like if you know, like someone who's the VP of it, you're just like, Oh, I'm just going to text this bid to this dude. And he's going to throw in a couple, like, Color Force 40, I don't know, whatever. I don't even know what they are anymore. <laughs> so, so That's really interesting to know, though. So yeah. in terms of where you can get bid, do you submit the bid to multiple shots? Because like, I would think that that's yeah. something that production does, not something that the lighting director is like, hey, I have a relationship with this house. I guess it kind of makes sense. Yeah. But well, because, yeah, if you have a relationship with, with like, certain houses, yes, they'll they'll throw in, like, extra lights for you. For, wow. For free sometimes. Like, See, it's all about favors. It Come really on. is. Well, it's all who you know and who you blow, guys. Like, <laughs> <laughs> not that I would ever advocate for that. But, um, yeah, they, they do they do have sometimes have that relationship. But there is, I mean, there are times where people... Um, where the producer does have a strong role in like, no, we're using this shop because they had the lowest bid. Like, it doesn't matter what they're throwing in. Like, they can strong arm you on, the, on that aspect sure. as well. Um, that, <coughs> that's happened a, on a couple a, a couple of times. But then again, you know, as an assistant, I was only really pulled in uh, right before tech because that was our... Um, that was our agreement in our relationship, and you okay. Know. So, so who was your your agreement was with the lighting direct the lighting designer, designer not yeah. with the show? Um, no, my contract was with the show. Was um, with the show, but yeah, I mean, there's kind of like a loose outline of like what they want you to do, especially depending on when you were hired. To be honest, like the show could already be designed at that point, and they're like, oh, now we're hi- hiring an assistant. Like they just need them for tech, for example, uh-huh. like I was. Um, uh, but yeah, I don't, I, it can, my contract is with the production company, uh, and part of the show and I'm part and I'm paid through that. Some, sometimes, um, assistants are paid through the lighting designer and the lighting designer chooses to make it out of the bu- budget. But, um, right. in this instance that I'm talking about where I felt like I was paid fairly for the first time for my work, um, 
And that and that's part of the reason is because I didn't do all of the work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So how much did you make and for the tech? So you came in right before tech. Mm-hmm. And then how long into the show opening, like how many weeks were you really there? I was there every single day for about like 16 hours a day. Oh. Yeah, long day. Long I mean, we days. all do it. We all do we it. We do. I can't believe it because like after an eight-hour day, I'm like, that was long. <laughs> the pandemic wore me out. No, we all do it. Um, but yeah, no, it would be every single day for 16 hour days, maybe two and a half weeks. Um, and I got paid $2,500. Okay. So that is a lot of hours, but yeah, I mean, if you're taking that, and then the other question is, can't, were you able to take other things at that during that? Not at all. You couldn't even do pre-pro on. Well, I think that's also what's, that is also a really interesting note to make in terms of like different roles in the industry as a lighting designer there's like essentially no like your job is to be in tech like everyone right. else you know when i talk to you for example you're like oh we're in tech it's fine though like i'll facetime you like oh, yeah. tech, tech is 85 <laughs> percent. i've done i've done all my work uh, yeah, unless I something know. is critically terrible and there are big changes happening god by the yeah. time we hit tech my job better be done yeah. And we just we just go from And you're just like to, running it. At yeah, that we point, run right? like little snippets from here to there yeah. and then lighting takes an hour to adjust everything. Exactly. But that's the thing. Like everyone else is sitting nice, easy breezy, beautiful well, cover yeah. girl, yeah, 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 but yeah. light lighting and then if there's projections on the show and are just like sound. Sound's doing a lot. Don't leave out sound. Don't hate but, on sound. Well they're no but they're it's trying. Like, I'm not saying I'm not trying to discredit. I think sound it sound is really difficult and hard, but in terms of tech, like not as much to be honest. Programming and getting EQs finesse. No, I know. Yeah, but it's not nearly as. But for what? Like in the same, it's the same thing as like they're more they're more probably related to a music director. I think, especially like they just don't come in. They don't come in until last. They don't get to do anything until tech either. I just don't want to spread any hate to sound people because I think it's a very noble job that I've done. Many no, times. I'm not here to spread hate. I'm just saying no, in terms I know. I'm of just, like I'm just messing people, with you. people, at, you have like, you know, let's say week, uh, week, let's say, let's say tech is one week, right? Like, I think it might've been for this show. It might've been, it might've been seven days. It might've been five days. I don't know. It was three years ago at this point. Um, it was f- four years ago at this point. Almost four years. Yes. Oh my God. So old. What happened to my youth? Um, uh, what was I talking about? <laughs> uh, lighting, lighting versus sound. Um, in tech, you had a week. Yes. Let's say, let's say, let's say you have a week, right. And the week of, of tech time. Right. And yes, yes. You're dealing with quick changes. Yes. You're dealing with like props backstage and like, there's lots of other stuff going on. Yeah. Um, but but literally sit here and realize for a fact that you have one week to do your job, like yeah. like yes you yes you're part of the bidding process yes you're part you got to do the plot and there's load in there's focus and like blah 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 you have it doesn't matter at all none of those things matter if yeah. it looks like shit like yeah. you have one week to do your to do your actual job sure. Um, and there's a lot of work that goes on, especially with if there's like time code involved or like other MIDI cues. Like there's yeah, no, a lot. There, not even just from a design standpoint and like making things look cool. It's like actually getting it to fucking function too. Yeah. And like you, that's why your team has to be like seamless. And that's why you spend. I mean, that's why 
And that goes back to the same conversation as to why I was hired. Who wants to spend 16 hours every single day for two and a half weeks with someone who's working under such an intense pressure like that with someone you don't like? No, exactly. And you, you don't trust. Like You can't do it. Being a trustworthy, likable person that can like keep people focused into such like crunch time is crucial. Yes. So that was the last gig there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. So thank you for sharing that. Uh, so then just to give people a sense mm-hmm. in terms of before you, you know, have been making your big career switch, just, just to talk a little bit about the realities of what TV is structured like in terms of how you were able to make a living there. Like, yeah. so can you just explain a little about you know, how you're hired for things, about what a shift entails, about minimums or about over... Just just to give people... Because I, I think these are things that people just don't... Until you're in the industry trying to find these things and talk to people, no one's talking about like, hey, here's how much like this makes hourly or hey, this is... We pay you for a week and you do X, Y, Z. Uh, so, you know, in a given month either for something like Maury or like uh, Jerry Springer mm-hmm. or NBC Sports, what are what are the structures like there and what is required of you versus what is the kind of like pay structure there? Yeah. Um, so um, I only joined my first union within the last couple of months. I'm part of NABET now, N-A-B-E-T, and it's part of like the communication workers of America. It's like one of a subset of a larger communication workers which i think has like radio and like any any other broadcast type television um um but there's kind of like two there's two branches of like unions that could be operating so it could be nabit um or it could be iatsi as well iatsi also does a lot of um theater and uh in all honesty is probably the better union of the two um in terms of like securing <laughs> better rates and structures well and we rules. also saw the iatsi stuff when uh there was that alec baldwin uh rust issue oh like they were on they were yeah. on film stuff too that was so. crazy i was eating that news up with like <laughs> i was on it every day i know well i was it was crazy but yeah so yeah. okay so there are two unions so not to not to derail us um I'm probably not the best person to talk to about in terms of like why there's one union and over another, but I know you have to like vote your union in, for example. Um, and they have to have like, uh, you know, so anyways, in terms of pay structure, um, for Maury and like those studio shows and Jerry Springer's judge show, um, <laughs> even though I wasn't part of the union, cause like I said, I only joined, uh, the union, they kind of operated under union rules, right? Because the, the electricians and the stagehands there were part of local one, which is IATSE. Gotcha. Um, so because they work under that schedule, there's like, you know, very clear break times. There was very clear, like, meal breaks and you get paid like a meal penalty. So anyways, my, my, even though I wasn't part of the union, Mm -hmm. my, my contract was directly with the company. Um, got you, which isn't the case if you're part of the union, if you're part of the union, the union has a deal with the company and you, and you're part of the union, which is now my case currently. Got you. Um, I know it's so confusing. Um, yeah, these are the things. Well, and this is kind of why I love having these conversations, right? Because mm-hmm. when did you take a class in school that was union Never. structure? <laughs> like, 
Like you hear yeah. about it a little bit on the daily or on people being like, oh, the auto workers union and mm-hmm. this is what they fought for. But the actual reality of like, what is it to be a part of a union and deal with it? Like, I mean, there's a lot of really crazy things where technically, yeah, if you're in the musicians union, if you're in local 802, if you're in New York City, technically you're not supposed to take other work. But like, that, you know, there, there's all these workarounds and there's all these things. Yeah. You know, actors equity, people are you go. You, performing under pseudonym to not have to, you know, yep. release their names, stuff like this. So I, I find this fascinating. It's really comp. A lot of it's very co- convoluted and complicated. So it is, but it so is. you're paid through the company as a union worker, but you weren't part of the union. Uh, no. <laughs> Shoot. See, I didn't even get it right. You're paid through the company at a union rate. So, uh, also no, it was a, Oh my God. The union kind of set, the union set a precedent is is so like the union essentially had the only role it played was like it was setting kind of like the the structure of the day sure for you um and also the like because you know like that's also the thing like when you know a union is in there they have this thing called so cba is a term it's also really funny because i'll be talking to someone who like is supposed to be in charge of like payroll or something and i'm like you know, once Nabit came into NBC Sports, I was like, oh, like, is there a collective bargaining agreement yet? And they were like, well, what's that? Like, they like, yeah. you're right. Like, nobody really even knows. There's even no people that are supposed to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's part of the idea here is just hearing from people who are part of one or who aren't and what that affords. And, yeah. you know, yeah. So, so anyways, um, in that in that specific scenario, um, the union kind of set like, you know, when there's a collective bargaining ag- agreement for the stagehand workers, for example, yeah. you can see what they're making. Right. Um, so you kind of use that as like a negotiation scale. point. We call that scale. Yeah. There's a there's a scale that they work under based off of like how many whether what contract you're on. And I think it also like depends on like how many viewers there are in, in broadcast weird. television. Like, Oh, that's so weird. It's very strange. But oh, also when you think metrics. about it, it's kind of similar to um, like, like whether it's a Broadway show or an off Broadway show, it's how many people can sit in the fucking theater. Like, yeah, that's <laughs> no, I mean, that's, that's fair. It's just interesting because the union rates for musicians stuff is, yeah, it's, it's our, it's our based, but then also for like orchestration stuff, it's like how many lines are on a page and yeah. paid for, you know, so, uh, but they don't set. So what's so interesting, I think, also about Ayatsi and also Nabit is they set like a weekly rate. So then you have to like do some weird math, and you're like, okay, divide by they, seven. Well, are they? No, no, no. Are they divide? I think I the know, rule just, of thumb I'm is like they're dividing it over. You're you're paid hourly, but then they're like, here's the minimum for the week, and so you're like, okay, so what does that mean? Like, if I'm working a forty hour. I think they do it off of a 40-hour work week, and then you work backwards. And then you're like, okay, so based off of that number, this is my hourly rate. Well, so this is where it gets really interesting, right? Because your minimum number of hours for a shift, even if you worked an hour Mm -hmm. at Jerry and those places, was, if I'm not mistaken, it was 10 hours, right? So if you worked... if you went into work for an hour, four days a week, yes, you made a forty-hour work week. Yeah, that that's was crazy, man. Yeah, I always thought that was the craziest thing. How much? So you can get spoiled with that though, too, yes, because you can. when you have to actually work the ten hours, you're like. <laughs> <laughs> but just for people listening, just to just to kind of like hint at this, how much did a ten-hour shift pay you? At, uh, at those places. Yeah, a 10 a 10 hour shift. So this was set because it was directly with the company. Right. Um I want to say but I also like don't want to hurt my 
I don't want to like put people on blast, I guess. Okay. Well, I mean, that's okay if you don't want to share. Here's what I will say in terms of like the, the minimums that, um, in terms of the minimums, like, like you said, if I was coming in for an hour, um, I will say that during COVID, (laughs) (laughs) this was the best gig I ever got. It's never going to happen again. Um, (laughs) Um, and they changed it really quickly once they realized what was happening Um, because I can't come into work without getting paid but during at the beginning of the pandemic especially when it was really scary and there was no vaccine um, they wanted us to come into work and part of that protocol was they were going to uh, provide a COVID test to make sure you were negative so that you can come into work that week so I get tested once a week at the facility, I would have to drive down there, get tested there. They had like their own nurse and whatever. Um, but they had to pay me a 10 hour shift because I came into work that day. And because you couldn't have the test the same day as work because they needed time to process. Correct. So it was like an absolute like free of charge. You full know, day for full one day, nose swab. Full day for them to take a couple boogers out of my nose. Well, and this is the thing, right? Is and I think I think they changed a, that really quickly. Sure, I think there's a <laughs> once genu- they figured that out. But, but I think yeah, there's those a genuine first there's a genuine conversation to be had here for like when something new happens. How does a union qualify it? Right, like a COVID test and the the things that that entails. It, it's a whole new thing, so they're trying to fit it under a conventional structure. I mean, I think the same thing is true yeah. of other things where like okay, conventionally you have to conduct a show, but now you have to press an Ableton pedal to make things go and like what is you know how does that fit in and just like uh just like the government in a way unions are just a more it's a little more amorphous because if there's something new that's not like standardized yet but a show does it Mm -hmm. they have to we have to we all have to figure out a way to qualify yeah. Same thing as like, how does something qualify for insurance if, you know, you have to expense it? So sometimes, you know, that, that that's potentially a pitfall. In this case, it worked out beautifully for you yeah. because you got a full day for getting a nose swab. Yeah. But, but, but yeah, I mean, that job was stressful. Like people, it's funny because I actually work in an environment now, like as, as a counselor at a school where sometimes it actually is life or death. People in the entertainment industry act like it's life or death all the time. Yeah. Oh, it's part. I mean, if a lot of times for it really no dis- good reason. <laughs> well, I mean, it really depends, right? Maybe it's not your ass on the line, but I, I, I definitely know. Like, I've spent a decent amount of, and this is something I'm actually interested in for future episodes of this podcast. I think a lot of people don't understand what it's like on the other side of all of this to actually finance and put up a show or a TV show or whatever. And everyone's like, Oh, it got cut and taken off and people's livelihoods are destroyed. And I think it's terrible. And I think corporations are absolutely doing everything they can to minimize expenses. But at the same time, you know, there are realities of what it is to ungreedily, if you were to balance the books and just look at the actual operating costs here, you know, I think I think there's the other side to it too, which is just like it's expensive to do. And so even if you're not losing your shirt and you're like, ah, oh, screw it, it's just like I mean, giant companies is one thing, but like, you know, people who are individual stuff, someone may someone might be losing years worth of investments that they wanted that they thought they were betting on. Yeah. So I, I think it's an interesting aspect of the industry that's pervasive and that we don't talk about a ton, uh, you know. 
if you go to Lincoln Center and you look at the hundreds and thousands of people from private donors who it takes to run that thing, I mean, it's not, and people have, you know, this, this other half of the conversation I think is really interesting too, of just like, what does it cost to put something up? And mm-hmm. how do you, you know, if you're running it as a business, what are ethical practices and such? So yeah. I, I think that's the other side that that, that well, and we have this conversation all the time, which is like because because things are so expensive to put up, like that's why people are only making re like when you think of like new shows on Broadway, for example, people are only putting up shit that they know will work. Like they're doing like revivals, or they're like, oh, this had this did really well this did really well off Broadway. So now like we're willing to like, you're not really getting the new kind of shows. Um, but also in terms of like television and movies, like we're getting fucking like boss baby part eight, like, sure. I mean, I think that, and those are all the kind of conversations about what is popular, uh, you know, what is pop art and what is pop music and what is pop theater and and how yeah how kind of recursive and pervasive it's gotten i think it was always you know disney disney did it years ago with lion king which is still very a ma- very magical show and very awesome show mm-hmm. but yeah i mean i i think also maybe there's a certain uh there there could be a certain laziness or a certain kind of just desire to get something up and just make it happen especially post covid so yeah, uh, or maybe not laziness, but maybe just desire to be like, oh, we got derailed, and and we've had this project in the back back line, in the you know, in the pipes for a long time, and we should. There's there's a million different reasons, and I think I'm not an advocate to just write everything off, but also, yeah, I mean, stuff feels really tired right now. So yeah, you know, I think it's a it, that's that the whole thing is a huge conversation that's not, you know, the conversation we're gonna have at the moment, and I think the conversation I do want to have at the moment is just like, if you could, you know, tell yourself in the past from your vantage point here, uh, what life feels like and what you've, you know, kind of learned from this whole experience of doing it and really doing it in the city, but then kind of pivoting and finding something else that feels good. I mean, is there anything that you feel like you would share with yourself that mm. your younger self? Yeah. <laughs> what a good question. Um, I feel like in terms of how I chose to handle my career, I'm I'm really happy with it, to be honest. Like, I think I think I played my cards right. I think I built a beautiful house of cards for myself that, you know, got me really far in a really short amount of period of time without necessarily being like overtly cutthroat and like backstabby I think as it can get um um but yeah I mean because I didn't enjoy school like there was such a huge philosophy I think hopefully it has dissolved a lot more since then but there was such a huge philosophy of like you know Oh, well, if you're, it was so, it was so cult-like and, and clicky, um, yeah. in the entertainment industry and like in a, in a conservatory, especially that like, um, I thought I was going to lose my entire, like, I thought I was going to lose my entire friend group if I had quit. Um, 
However, that should have been my first sign that like I just don't fucking like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that that should have been like my first sign that like this isn't for me. But I was so against the philosophy of like, you know, I was I was fighting against my dad of like, why aren't you being an engineer? Like, no, I'm going to go into this. I'm going to go into this thing. Um Sure. Um and you know, everyone's kind of like, they'll like talk about people that like left the program, for example, and be like, oh yeah, they were never going to make it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There is like, a, there's a huge, huge, huge gatekeepy thing, but I guess, yeah. but I guess to all the haters out there, uh, or just all the people like struggling with feelings like this, what, you know, do you find yourself less motivated now to, to go seek out art? Or to go seek out things that remind you of why you did it? Like, do you feel less connected in a certain sense? Uh, Or do you feel like it's, you know, how how do you feel your relationship right now to fine and performing arts is? To finding performing arts? Fine fine and performing arts. Oh, fine fine arts. Um, Fine arts and performing arts. Yeah, I don't know, dude. It's so we have this conversation all the time with each other, right? <laughs> yeah, but now it's for people. Yeah, I know, but it's like, what is my relationship with it anymore? I was never, you know, like we said, I was never really like, oh, it's all about like I love musical theater, and that's why I'm doing musical theater. Or like I'm so I love this playwright. Like I never came from that philosophy. No, but you of came it. from a place where you would have your favorite bands on like twenty five seven. Yeah, like you definitely. It wasn't for lack of love of music or, or you know, cinema or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think also I think as as millennials, we kind of grew up under a different philosophy of like you know our parents always kind of taught us do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Um, but in reality, doing what I loved at the time made it work. Like. I think having space from it, honestly, has been... I've been more inspired and artistic than I have been when I was doing it for my job. Like, I, I don't know if that makes sense at all, but it's, like, the second you kind of just, like, let your hobbies be hobbies and, like, remove capitalism from it, it's it kind of all just, like, it feels good again. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not forcing myself to make art... Um, in the same way. But now I'm like, you know what? I never got, I never had a chance. I was so married to like lighting design and that part of my career that like, I never got to join like the costume, like mm. sector, for example. And then I just bought like a fucking sewing machine. I'm like, I'm going to learn how to sew now. Like, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. I think, it, I think it's interesting because there's definitely a fundamental f- fibrousness of myself and a lot of musicians because I'm a musician, most, you know, and actors, but especially musicians who have been doing it or dancers, actors, musicians who have been doing it since they were two. Yeah. Um, so I think when it is written into your DNA in a, in some regard, it can be scarier to even try to let go a little bit mm-hmm. because when you are it and it is you, there's very little separate. There's you don't you yeah. can't kind of take the subject and make it an object. See, but th- this th- conversation is what I love. I think the most out of everything, which is why I chose to change change fields because there's a marriage there between identity and self and like what you're able to produce. And especially if you choose to go into a career in it, it's then it's married with capitalism as well. So there's kind of like this 
it's not necessarily, I guess, what everyone calls the dark triad, but it's like a second dark triad that exists where it's like there's the self and then there's the the art and then there's the the making money of the art. Right. And I think the making and I guess where I would love to kind of end is that that making money half the reason I want to do this at all and have these conversations at all is because we focus a ton on the self and a ton on the art and a ton on the outward side. And I feel like the, 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 you know, top of the pyramid here, or maybe, maybe it's not the top. Maybe it's one of the two feet. Maybe it's the hidden foundation, right? It's like underground here. Mm -hmm. Uh, that it just is a part of the conversation. And we pretend a lot of times like it's not. Mm. We get our paycheck, and then the moment we have a paycheck, we're like, now just art. And I do think that's the way you have to do it. But I think while we're having the conversation overall, there's a lot that's just not... We're not admitting. We're just not admitting. It's not bad. There's no fundamental bad value judgment. Mm -hmm. You know, that capitalism is what it is. Making a career is what it is. And we just can't lie about... The fact that it's part of it and mm -hmm. it just is part of it. So I think that is, that brings us to the end of this episode. Uh, that was great. Thank you so much for being guest number two. Well, you know, if you ever want to talk again, I'm around Are in you? your office all the time. <laughs> yeah, I think you can see my, my hand. Oh. Yeah, somewhere in, uh, Anyway, thank you to everybody for thank you if you're listening to this. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, sorry that I am sick this week. I hope to be not sick next week. Um, and we will continue having conversations with various people. Uh, thank you again to Lizzie. And do you have any parting words of anything <laughs> for for the people? Yes. Um, be. I think I think where we left off today with the the identity and the capitalism and the self like the more you can introduce space in between those three things the happier of a person you will be overall. Ooh. Like that's what that's what I will part with. Like if you want to keep them all in the same genre of like this is part of my identity and it's also what I do for work, the more you can introduce space in between there, the more of a calm and a better artist and a better like working musician or whatever you are, like the happier of a person you will be overall. That's what I'll leave everyone with. I guess my only tiny follow-up is can you do that whilst do you need to step away from what you're doing to make that happen or are you saying just the awareness it's it's a mindfulness practice it's, there we go. it's, it's understanding what you're doing for work what you're doing for your art and what you're doing for yourself and sometimes they can all be the same thing and, and recognizing that they're all the same thing for a specific instance then that awareness can kind of like bring perspective into whatever you're dealing with um, in terms of a challenge, I guess. Well, couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for being here. We'll see you all next week. Thank you again to Lizzie Mahoney for being the second guest on this show. We have a website coming out soon. Uh, we will let you guys know when that is available. Otherwise, thank you so much for listening, and uh, we will see you next week here on Taken Off the Ritz.